Hi. Thank you for tuning in to the Called Out Cafe. There's so many choices out there for how to spend your time. I appreciate you spending it with me, wherever you are. If this is your first time joining me, I'd like to suggest that you start off with episode number one and listen to the episodes in sequence. Without the background information and considering what Jesus said in order, the Olivet Discourse can be easily misunderstood. If you have questions about what I'm saying along the way, please feel free to email me at doug at doughooley.com. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, there's about 279 million Pentecostal Christians and 305 million Charismatic Christians in the world today. That's about 27% of all Christians and 8% of the world's population. Charismatics believe that the Holy Spirit works very much in the same way that He did when the Church was first starting out, and that spiritual gifts have gone on unchanged since that time also, prophecy being one of those spiritual gifts. Most Pentecostals would not limit the gift of prophecy to this, but some today believe that the gift of prophecy is mainly seen as preaching or teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This view of prophecy is that the person doing the teaching or preaching is using what the Lord has already said in Scripture and applying it to today's circumstances for the benefit of the local body of the ecclesia. Do you know what I mean by ecclesia? That's the Greek word found in the Bible that's commonly translated as church. Maybe I'll talk about this more in detail sometime, but ecclesia means literally the called out ones. It's where the name of this podcast came from. Anyway, for now, a local gathering of ecclesia is probably what you think of as a local church. Back to the gift of prophecy. Most charismatics would say that the gift of prophecy looks more like something like you'd see in the Old Testament when a prophet would give a thus says the Lord type spontaneous utterance. What the prophet would say did not necessarily have to do with predicting the future. It could have been in the form of encouragement, admonition, or instruction. Most charismatics would agree that modern prophecy, which comes from God, would never be in conflict with Scripture. Although some movements believe that modern prophecy overrides Scripture, or even if they don't directly say that, they say that a modern prophet has the authority to reinterpret Scripture. At the risk of alienating one side or another, my personal view, based on Scripture, history, and personal experience, is that both views are correct, with the following caveats. I won't go into detail here, but I have personally witnessed and experienced things on several occasions that there are absolutely no natural explanations for. I say that as a skeptical, 25-year veteran of the criminal justice profession. Having said that, I don't believe that actual modern-day prophecies are common. I don't believe a God-given prophecy will ever conflict with Scripture, even if it comes from, as Paul put it, an angel of light. Although God may very well provide encouragement, admonition, and specific direction through modern-day prophecy, I believe all of the information that we believers today need to navigate this world and what is to come, is already included in Scripture. I will always trust using sound methods of interpreting what Scripture has to say over what a prophet has to say. 
And I believe that acting like or imitating a modern-day prophet is easily accomplished. And so we need to actively heed the words of Jesus I'm about to read and watch out for false prophets. This is not me squashing the Spirit, as some might say. This is me following the direction of my Master, Jesus. I don't think Jesus is only talking about modern prophets that give spontaneous divine utterances. I believe that he's also talking about the more conservative definition of what constitutes prophecy, teaching or preaching in the name of Jesus. That is to say, that a false prophet can be a teacher or a preacher that misrepresents Jesus and what he wants his followers to know through misusing God's word. Here are the words of Jesus from Matthew 24, verse 11. This is my own translation of the verse. Please feel free to follow along with your own translation. And many false prophets shall rise up and shall deceive many. Well, if I were to just quickly read through this passage, I might think that Jesus is simply emphasizing what he had just said a few sentences earlier in verse 5 when he said this, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. One may also think that this statement seems a little random in the middle of a passage that's talking about persecution and falling away from the faith. However, Jesus is actually giving us some insight as to why the persecution, betrayal, and falling away is taking place, and why we will see an increase in wickedness and love growing cold. False prophets will have something to do with it. The Greek word for false prophet is pseudoprophetai. This is a word made up of three root words. Pseudo, meaning false or untrue. Pro, meaning before or for. And femi, meaning to say or speak one's mind. Literally, all together, it means a foreteller of untruths. <laughs> a false prophet can come in many forms, a false messiah being only one of them. They can come in the form of a teacher of untruths from both within and outside of the church. They can be overt, like Muhammad, and covert, like someone who attempts to introduce false teaching into the church. Institutions of learning and the media are full of false teaching. Just a little while later in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus will tell us that these false prophets will be so effective that they may even be able to fool the elect of God. I don't want to use specific examples, because these teaching principles I'm talking about will be true or are true regardless of what time period we're living in and what the headlines say. But as I record this in mid-February of 2021, we've just came through a period of time where many modern prophets had made predictions regarding the outcome of the election. All of the prophecies which said Donald Trump would win the presidency have proven to be false. There have been many follow-up prophecies about how the election will become overturned through one means or another. Then, when those fail, other prophecies are made saying how, at some future date, the election will still be overturned. This continues to this day. Some would even now say that I have no faith, and that we should live by faith and not by sight. That since the prophets have proclaimed it, Donald Trump actually has won the election. He's considered president in heaven 
and still may be on earth. I am not making this stuff up. Well, I have a different biblical definition of what constitutes faith. Let me leave that there. These predictions have come from both kinds of prophets, the ones who claim to be giving divine utterances on behalf of God, and from those preachers and teachers using their positions and misusing Scripture to speak on behalf of God. Both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible have quite a bit to say about false prophets. Wherever they are coming from, whether inside or outside of the church, there's a simple test to see if a prophet is legitimate. If they're making a prediction about the future on behalf of God, that prediction must become 100% true. We need to test every single prophecy given to determine if they are true or not. Testing is not doubting or squashing the working of the Holy Spirit. Testing is an act of obedience to God. True followers of the truth, and remember Jesus is the truth, will be anxious to test such prophecies and not discouraging people from testing them. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4, verses 1 to 2, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John tells us to test whether or not the prophet is speaking in the spirit of truth or the spirit of error and falseness. Earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus talked about false prophets. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is recorded saying that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. So, what is the fruit of of a prophet. It's what they say. Bad fruit is when they say something that is wrong or untrue. I could go on with many other scriptures that talk about false prophets. I could talk about the Old Testament penalties for being a false prophet, but I'm just going to leave that to God to sort out. I just want to make sure that I am heeding Jesus' warning not to follow false prophets. Both force and deception will be used to convince people that the smart thing to do is to pledge their allegiance to the Antichrist and become a part of his ungodly system. People will be so convinced of this that they'll be willing to betray their family in order to be a part of the Antichrist system. There will be far more than one false prophet that will deceive many people. However, we're told in the book of Revelation that the Antichrist will have help in convincing the people that they should follow him. His help will come from a single person referred elsewhere in Scripture as the false prophet. That can be found in Revelation 16, 13, 19, 20, and 20, verse 10. This chief among false prophets will also be able to perform what appear to be miraculous signs and wonders. Referring to this false prophet, the Apostle John 
author of the book of Revelation, wrote, And he, the false prophet, does great wonders, so that he, again the false prophet, makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceive them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he, the false prophet, had power to do in the sight of the beast, the Antichrist, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, again the Antichrist, which had the wound by a sword and did live. That's found in Revelation chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. I interjected the character identification and interpreted the symbols for you. Well, the falling away from the faith that we've talked about in previous episodes and betraying those who remain in the faith go hand in hand. It becomes easier to betray when you have no love for someone. Jesus indicates that because of the increase of wickedness, that the love of many, not just a few, will grow cold. Because of what the rest of the passage says, this may be referring to love for God or to the love for those we call family and friends. This is from Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will be made cold. That's just what I was talking about there. The correlation between the increase of lawlessness and love growing cold is interesting. The sequence seems to be that tribulation, persecution, and deception leads to a great falling away of the faith. A departure from the Christian faith leads to wickedness or lawlessness, and this lawlessness leads to love growing cold. Love growing cold leads to the betrayal of others. The betrayal of others leads to their persecution, which contributes to this end-of-the-age cycle. The King James Version of the Bible uses the antiquated term wax, saying that the love of many will wax cold. The original meaning of the Greek word used means to cool something, to cool it down by blowing on it or having air move over a surface to cause cooling by means of evaporation. This definition brings to mind something other than just passive cooling down, like when you take a tea kettle off a burner. It denotes more action, like when you dump a bucket of cold water on something. I'll bet after all this talk about uh, persecution and hate and love growing cold and betrayal, you're ready for some good news. Well, here it is. For those that do not fall away from the faith, there is a promise. And we can read that promise in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13. But the one who patiently suffers to the end, that same person will be saved. Mark 13, verse 13, the second part of it puts it this way. But the one that patiently suffers to the end, that same person will be saved. Luke chapter 21, verse 18 to 19 puts it this way. But not a hair on your head will be lost. Through your patient endurance, you will gain your soul. In the midst of betrayal and persecution, there is a promise from Jesus that if you endure, you will gain life. Surely Jesus is not talking about saving one's physical life. Two thousand years of people dying for their faith in Jesus and numerous scriptures on this topic indicate that this is not the case. This scripture is clearly referring to eternal life. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've already gained eternal life. 
Although your physical body likely will die one day, the reborn spirit inside you right now will never see death. In Jesus' letter to the seven churches, as recorded in the book of Revelation by the Apostle John, there are several promises made in regards to eternal life as a result of being faithful. For example, listen to this passage from Revelation chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil will cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you'll have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful even to death, and I will give you the crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. Dr. Luke's documentation of the Olivet Discourse includes the statement that not one hair on your head will be harmed. Yet, it may very well be that one may have their physical hair on their head harmed as a result of persecution. Suffering physical harm is a temporary problem. To think that this verse could possibly mean that one who is faithful will never suffer physical harm would be taking this verse out of context and missing the point about eternal life and salvation that Jesus is making. The rest of the surrounding scriptures are all talking about physically suffering and even dying for the cause of Christ. Does this mean this verse represents one of those unresolvable conflicts within scripture? No, it doesn't. I don't have as much hair in my head as I used to. I don't look to this promise to restore my physical hair or hold on to what remains. That sounds silly, but if we take some scripture literally, rather than how we would take someone communicating with us in a normal, natural, customary sense, taking use of hyperbole into consideration, it's where we end up with a full head of hair if we're to be faithful. To be really literal... It means that you may die from the persecution, but the hair in your head will be thick and full. Kind of absurd, huh? What Jesus is really talking about is not fearing or succumbing to those that can do harm to your physical body, but rather fearing God, who controls your eternal status. Listen to this from Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Of course, that's talking about God. The main objection typically raised by those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is that God would not allow his beloved church to suffer trials and tribulations like the intense persecution described under the rule of the Antichrist. Pre-tribulationists argue that since God would not allow such terrible persecution of his church, the rapture must take place prior to this. I'm going to give you three different things to think about in regards to this pre-tribulational rapture argument. First, it's time to answer a question that I put forward a couple of podcasts ago. I need to remind you of that. It's, why would a good and sovereign God allow bad things to happen to good people? A pretty common question that's out there. Well, the answer to that question whatever your answer is, or whatever the actual answer is, is my first argument against those that say God would not allow his church to suffer persecution associated with the end of the age. So what is the answer? I'm not going to give it to you. You tell me, why will God allow the end of the age church to go through severe persecution? 
I would argue that it's the same answer and why a good and sovereign God allow bad things to happen to good people. Does God love the people who will make up the last day's church more than he does the mother that's today dying of cancer? Or the child who drowns in the lake? Why doesn't he rescue them and the children around the world that are dying of malnutrition? You tell me that answer. Secondly, I have another question for you to answer. Is God going to love and care more for his future church than he has loved and cared for his past or present church? Will he think more of their physical well-being than Jesus' disciples, who all, save possibly one, died painful deaths for his namesake? Were all of those persecuted under the Roman Empire who were being torn to shreds in the Colosseum less deserving of God's rescue from persecution? How about the thousands, possibly the tens of thousands, that have suffered and died for Christ since then? Finally, I want to make the point that it's not up to mortal human beings to decide ultimate good. It's God's plan, not man's. It's not mankind's place to say what seems logical, humane, or just, and then determine scriptural doctrines based on our finite point of view. No matter how compassionate and logical we believe that point of view to be, it's still God's decision. Our place is to accept what the Bible tells us about God's plan, and then to trust Him, even if it looks like there is pain in store, even if it looks like we're going to be persecuted. Aren't we talking about a God that in His wisdom and perfect will cursed mankind to death because Adam disobeyed God? Isn't it also the same Almighty God who sent His only Son to painfully die on a Roman cross to atone for our sins? Were there not six million of God's chosen people that perished in World War II at the hands of the Antichrist-like maniac? Are we not talking about the God who is calling out a holy nation, a people from among the world who live by faith and willingly follow His Son no matter what the consequences? Didn't God tell us in His Word that He would conform those people into the image of His Son? As many Christians around the world today will attest to, while suffering and watching their brothers and sisters die for the name of Jesus at the hands of evil persecutors, sometimes God's plan includes extreme pain and even death of the ones God loves dearly. To continue to believe that God would not allow those he loves dearly to suffer according to his purposes is to engage in cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is what happens when we continue to try and believe something that does not line up with the facts as we come to know them. That's going to happen here when someone wants to believe God would never allow those he loves to suffer when they're confronted by scripture that clearly says the church will suffer persecution during the end of the age, as well as becoming aware of the countless historical accounts of the cruel persecution of Christians throughout the past 20 centuries. The facts do not line up with the fantasy. My prayer is that those who hold to this baseless theory will give up the doctrine of comfort and convenience in favor of the truth and be given faith to trust our Almighty God, whatever may come. Let's go back to Matthew 24:13 for just a minute. Remember it says, But the one who patiently suffers to the end, that same person 
will be saved. It's sometimes beneficial to look at what Scripture does not say. This verse does not say that God will rescue the ones He loves before they suffer. It says that the ones who patiently suffers to the end will be saved. And remember the Revelation passage I read tells us that suffering may even include death in order to gain the crown of life. Some of you may already be thinking about the counter-argument for this, that this scripture only pertains to those who are, quote, left behind, unquote, and are tribulation saints uh, after God raptures his church. Those who do not get rapture will be the ones to suffer. There is so much to say about that. I don't even want to talk about it now, but I have to because it's probably where some of your minds are going. I Believe me, I'm going to address all of that in future podcasts. For now, I just want to make a couple of quick points. First, I can't stress enough how important it is to just let Scripture speak for itself. The pre-tribulation rapture counter-argument that I just spoke of, where there's a tribulation saint that's left after the rapture, is a teaching that is obviously not based on what Jesus has said so far during his talk regarding his return to this earth or the end of the age. You just haven't seen that so far in the Olivet Discourse. It's a teaching that's based on scripture that comes from elsewhere in the New Testament. However, if you stick with a careful study of the Olivet Discourse, you will see the obvious rapture of the ecclesia that takes place after the persecution has began and the Antichrist has been revealed. When you compare Scripture with Scripture in the New and Old Testament, you're going to use up all of the Scripture that looks like the rapture, and you're going to use it up all on one single event that we see in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. There'll be no Scripture that will remain that supports a different or secret rapture. So let's just keep going and see where we end up according to Scripture and what Jesus has to say during his Olivet Discourse. We haven't seen any evidence of Jesus' followers being rescued ahead of time yet in the Olivet Discourse, have we? Secondly, to say that tribulation saints, or those who would theoretically be, quote, left behind, unquote, after a secret rapture, that they would have to undergo persecution and God's judgment, is to again set up a sort of a class system in the ecclesia. What? Only some scriptures apply to tribulation saints. Those who trust in Jesus are not only saved by grace after the rapture, but their actions. It's necessary for them to be purified because what Jesus did on the cross was not sufficient. Are they appointed to suffer the wrath of God, but those who were raptured were not? This teaching opens up so many issues that end up conflicting with Scripture and relies on a multi-tiered theory of salvation. The fear and inconvenience of suffering persecution has caused people to believe a teaching that is essentially a slap in the face to thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ that have suffered persecution and died for their faith in Jesus before us. No, God will not allow any of his elect to suffer his judgment. Yes, according to his infinite wisdom, he has and will allow his elect to suffer trials, tribulation, and persecution. Well, in summary, the end of the age is going to bring with it the persecution of those that follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus will be hated 
because of Jesus' name. This persecution will lead to a great falling away from the faith, separating out those who never really knew Jesus as their Lord. Those who are closest to Christians, their own family in some cases, will betray them. The love of many will grow cold during this period of time. Some followers of Jesus will go to prison or be put to death for their faith. Those who remain faithful to Jesus until the end, even if it means they will lose their physical life, will gain eternal life. Jesus cannot deny himself, and through the Holy Spirit of God, those that belong to Jesus will overcome. Next time, we'll talk about Jesus' statement regarding the gospel being spread throughout the world before the end comes and what that means. Until then, thanks so much for listening. May God bless and keep you. And Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.